Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. How's it going? What's up? How's your weekend been? I'm great. Spring is over and it's some, okay, not like now that we're recording, but the time that everyone's listening. Happy first day of summer. Happy first day of summer. Um, You know, as uh, temperatures get uh, a little bit more extreme. Uh, Yes. uh, (laughs) I don't know if it's going to be the happiest summer, (laughs) but... I love summer, so I can't be too down about it. No, and actually, I hate the heat, so I, I can be down about it. Um, thank you for reminding me of the um, of reality, I guess. Reality. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> but yes, we have actually quite a few things to, to discuss today. But for all of our listeners, the theme of the day is going to be, holy shit, a lot of people are reaching their breaking point. Yeah, like it also just feels like, you know, you expect these things to happen in some sort of catastrophic, I don't know, event where all of a sudden everything just kind of collapses. And you realize that, no, it's really the boiling frog metaphor. Like things just just crawl towards being worse. (laughs) And I've been thinking a lot about this this past week because my fridge is broken and I don't have a temperature gauge in my fridge. And so it is literally a slow march towards, oh, someone got food poisoning. That's weird. Oh, fuck that. The milk tastes really warm. And you're like, oh, fuck. (laughs) Oh, my God. A slow march towards food poisoning. What a great metaphor for so much that's happening in the world. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Shall we thank some folks? Yes, we have some people to thank. And I'm having a bit of trouble determining whether or not we've already thanked this person. So I'm going to start with him anyway, because I think we may have. But hey, maybe you get two shout outs. Thanks so much this week to Kirk. Adam, Carolina, and Cody, we really, really appreciate your support. Thank you so, so much. Yes. Thank you all for those of you who make this podcast run. Now, like I said, we've got a lot of things on our minds this week, but first thing I want to mention, I've got on my mind because I'm heading out of Toronto today, so I'm going to the airport. (laughs) And I don't know if you've seen the news, but, uh, or maybe you've experienced this yourself because you've recently left Toronto, but apparently the airport delays in Canada right now are a thing of legend, like <laughs> a thing that feels almost impossible. And I guess I saw a little bit of this as I came into the city, I was delayed on the tarmac, they wouldn't let us deplane for about an hour and 45 minutes, which meant that a lot of people missed their connecting flights. And it was it was just chaos. Um, did you have that experience too? Um, I have not really been too snarled by the delays personally, because I have mostly managed to fly not through Pearson. And um, that was not the case when I came back from Calgary a couple of weeks ago, where a friend of mine from Quebec City found themselves stranded at Pearson for 12 hours and there wasn't a single airport hotel with a room open. <laughs> so shout out to my family oh for my letting God. her and I crash in my niece's bed <laughs> who lived near the airport. Um, but yeah, the, the, the airport troubles are, are really interesting because they're like just a very minor gauge of where people are and where the system is and where people are trying to travel again. Uh, There's a lot of 
weddings that are finally happening and funerals that, that are finally happening. So you can see that people are traveling more to, to be able to do these family events. Um, and of course, vacations and of course, traveling for work. That's all starting again, too. And the system is just like not ready for it. And I've seen a lot of people say, well, I mean, flying is a privilege. Why are you even paying attention to the airports? This is ridiculous. The real news is on the healthcare system. And I would say uh, that that flying is kind of like an indicator, though. And as as go the airports, so too go so many other aspects of our society, um, but both because airports are massive employers with tons and tons of low paid precarious workers and because airports are like actually kind of important to um, parts of the economy that might be invisible. Um, and so, yeah, we're just seeing this slow collapse, as I said at the beginning of the episode. And for some people, that means like you're not getting your luggage for like three days. Yeah, that's that's a a really important piece. Like the the thing is that this is about work, and um, but what's really really weird is the way that it's been covered in the news, and the way that the government has responded. No one's really talking about work. People seem to really want to blame this on COVID measures that were implemented, but that's not, <laughs> that is not what the problem is. And so, you know, the government responded by saying, we're in order to lift, uh, you know, the, the pressure at the airports, we are going to stop doing random testing um, for COVID, which happens for anyone who's been through the airport system. Um, I don't know if this is elsewhere other than Pearson that these problems are having, but it happens at the very end. It doesn't, ha- it doesn't, it is nowhere near any of the de- delays. The delays um, are happening because there's not enough people who are working uh, in like at customs who are not, not working at uh, where the baggage uh, section is. Like, that's clearly what's happening. But the government responds by doing this weird thing that has, like, no relationship <laughs> to what the actual issue is, which I guess is a sign of the times, because um, <laughs> that seems to be the way that we respond to everything. But I think um, the takeaway there for me is just how weirdly resistant we are and we saw this throughout the pandemic, how weirdly resistant we are as a culture to talk about work and to talk about the problems with work. Like, why are there not enough people working in these jobs? Because they're not good jobs. (laughs) They're not good jobs. And there are a lot of workers who were lost during the pandemic. Um, Now, talk to many different people. You'll hear many different reasons as to why, like whether it was that they're underpaid jobs, whether it was that um, there was like uh, some sort of scheme where people were clocking in more hours than uh, they were actually working, which seems to suggest it's an underpaid job. <laughs> and, you know, like all of these issues that um, are resulting from from uh, poor work conditions, poor compensation, and a lack of access to good jobs. But the government's response is, here's this thing that we'll do that has nothing to do with the issue. And then the resulting debate online is about you know, these flashpoint issues that have polarized people over the last few years, which is like COVID, COVID response and COVID measures. And it's just, it's like, 
you know, again, a sign of the times, like this is so incredibly bizarre. Can we not focus on what the actual issue is on anything, (laughs) on something as, you know, it's not as consequential as say something like uh, the climate crisis where you can see where all of the, um, uh, the special interest groups are aligned to make us not talk about the issue. And I'm just like, here, why can't we talk about the issue? (laughs) You know, it's just, it seems so impossible. And I just am really frustrated more and more about our inability to talk about, look at, and squarely critique and fix the issues with work in this country. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and this is also where Pearson uh, delays are such a, a a, a doorway into understanding what's happening, you know. So I had a friend who got into Pearson and um, had to cancel the connecting flight. Instead, just drove uh, the distance of the connecting flight because it wasn't going to like she'd have to be there for something like twenty hours. And after ninety minutes of waiting for their bags, someone came out and said that there was a workplace health and safety incident that prevented their bags from being uh, unloaded. Now, it was like 40 degrees, and I don't know how many people, how many uh, listeners know folks who've worked as ramp agents. Um, Like, these are really, like, the working conditions are horrible, horrible. I've helped people navigate workers' health and safety claims for uh, permanent injuries that they've received working on ramps. And I don't doubt that the the heat likely had something to do with whatever the the, the emergency, the medical emergency was uh, with those workers. And these are workers who are making less than $20 minimum wage uh, with hours that are horrifying, right? Often part-time. I have another friend that was a, a ramp agent that would only be working for one 10 o'clock flight every, every day, like PM, you know? So, got to go to work for my 10 o'clock PM because that's when the flight is coming in. Um, And then, oh, they put in another flight. So now I'm working 10 PM and I'm working uh, 9 AM. And those are my two shifts. Like, it's just like completely ridiculous. And in the same way that the discussions around inflation and affordability have, are never, ever penetrating what the real issues are. Um, there's no real conversation about radical transformation of these spaces that are completely in the realm of possible, not only in the realm of possible, but actually existed. So in the airline industry or in transportation in general, no serious discussion at all, or not even not serious discussion on nationalization, on making Air Canada be again a crown corporation and cutting out the amount of money that goes into Air Canada that just goes out into shareholder pockets and, and instead actually putting that into government coffers. So that would be the not radical pers- like perspective on something like the airline industry because we have a history of uh, you know of Air Canada being a crown corporation. Um, but then it also let's let's look at you know oh do you remember. Petro Canada. Oh yeah, Petro Canada. Like that used to be a crown corporation too. Um, not crown corporation anymore. No one is talking about nationalizing any of the oil and gas industry. That is something that we should seriously be debating right now. And then to go into a more radical space where there isn't a history of this in Canada, where where's the conversation about nationalizing one of the major food uh, uh, companies, one of the major grocery companies? Like, expropriate fucking Loblaws from the Weston family and then let them fucking cry and until they like can't breathe anymore, right? Like this is the kind of conversation that we need to be having. And instead media is focusing this solely on the people receiving the service, the clients. 
the clients in the airport, passengers at the airport, client like you know people buying gas at the pumps, um, and then and then really when we get to the healthcare system, what it means for individuals trying to access like emergency services, it's too narrow a frame, and it's being constructed that way very much on purpose. Yeah, and then and then of course like the conclusion of the of the problem being um, COVID. Like I get I get the. <laughs> yeah. Um, the the sort of um, allure of that as a as a simple way to to solve the problem. This wasn't a problem before. It is a problem now, but it's changed in between the before and the now. COVID, but what COVID has done has exploded all of these issues with work, <laughs> and we're just so resistant to talking about it. So resistant to talking about it. Instead, um, the only sort of frame that is really popular in talking about work is like this sort of uh, young person's workers revolution where Gen Z is like refusing to take certain working conditions and blah, 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 which is not the only thing that's happening. It is part of the story, but is again, like a really weird individualized frame of like, you know, these people uh, are refusing to have certain work conditions. It's a very weird sort of, it is a frame to the story. It's the frame that has taken off, but it is only one and it fails to, um, appreciate this, the collectivity um, through which people are have experienced uh, changes with work uh, over the pandemic, the issues uh, of the pandemic with respect to work, and where we are right now. And so, you know, that leaves us in this very weird place where it's like all of these delays are being caused by COVID. And so we're going to get rid of random testing that has nothing to do with the delays. Anyway, I hope uh, not to be waking super long tonight when I get to the airport. Um, but that is only one of the issues that we intend to raise today, dear listeners. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that you mentioned the unionization stuff because it's been really interesting to me how the that individualized frame like it 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 makes these organizing victories which are great like the organizing victories are absolutely victories but anybody that is involved in the labor movement knows that getting unionized is like such a small part of the actual fight it is step one of about a hundred frustrating, soul crushing, lots of work, people fighting, people navigating, struggle. I mean, we use the word struggle for a reason. It starts something that is much more difficult than just getting your coworkers to sign a union card, a union card. And while every single new union is a victory, it is a small victory because keeping that union together is the much harder challenge and mm-hmm. changing the, the balance of, 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 of forces is the much bigger challenge. Um, and so, you know, again, we have this situation that is mostly happening in the United States. Of course, there are some really great union victories that are that are happening in Canada as well. But most of the news that we're getting, uh, especially around Starbucks workers, are, is coming from the U.S. It's like, OK, but now what? Then what? Like what happens like <laughs> we already the, we already have low income workers who are unionized. What happens then? And then, you know, you look at the airport. How many of these workers are unionized? A lot of them are. A lot of them are unionized or the healthcare system, which is highly unionized. And we still have these massive problems. So, again, refusing these like 
individual one-off in like very isolated narratives and stepping back and saying, okay, so what is the connection between um, frontline coffee workers, let's say unionizing and um, the, the role that profits in a company like Starbucks plays in funding social services? Like, can we actually make a little bit more of a deeper connection here? Or are we seriously like, you're just going to be like, Workers unionized. Yay. And it's like, oh, God, like I got to just turn off everything I know about my experience in the labor movement to be like, OK, wow, victory's done. <laughs> let's never let's never revisit that again. And anybody that's negotiated their first contract knows how how absolutely fucking mm-hmm. difficult that really is. So, you know, again, it, it like there's a bit of like um, this is maybe where social media is such a problem. It's like a bit of like a gamified approach to talking about this stuff. So it's like you've beat the boss, right? But it's like, it's like the bo- there's there's a boss in every level. Wow, that's a great analogy. You know? Yeah, and we got to keep yeah, doing that. Totally. Okay, so another piece of information that um, kind of came out of Toronto this week was this uh, this like huge report from the Toronto Police Services um, that comes from the province of Ontario mandating that police services across the province collect race-based data on use of force. So the Toronto Police Services, for the first time, we have um, data that tells us about use of force, um, race-based, directly from them. Uh, Previous data that we've had has come from academics or the Human Rights Commission of Ontario. Um, And uh, it it also, the Toronto Police Services also released uh, statistics on strip searches. And the statistics are not surprising, my friends, as you may imagine. Um, the, the, what ended up happening was that there was a leak of this information that was going to come out and that it was going to be um, bad. Uh, it was going to uh, show that the black community in Toronto were overpoliced. Surprise, surprise. Um, the black community has been saying this forever. And so this leak comes out and along with the leak is information that the police chief has prepared um, his officers for this information by saying that it's going to be a really dark day. Uh, police officers, like people are going to question the really valuable work that you do. It's going to be really hard for you. So I want to make sure that you're all doing well, whatever the fuck he said, you know, like the, basically the leak was like that they were preparing uh, the police officers to feel really, really shitty about how racist they are. And um, so then after this leak, another leak comes out that I'm sure was more planned um, that the, the Toronto police services planned to apologize <laughs> to the black community for all their racism. Now, Nora, did you see this apology? I did not. Okay. So I saw the, I saw the folks responding to the apology, but I didn't listen to the apology itself. So the apology went something like this, and this is like a huge paraphrase. It was like a very fucking long press conference, but the apology essentially was like, um, we've taken a look at the data and oh my God, y'all have, you've been right all this time. Uh, it shows that, and this is data from 2020, Nora. So, um, this is data during the pandemic and this is data after the bombshell, um, sort of the, the, the bombshell report from the human rights commission that, 
um, and then, you know, the province mandating that this stuff be collected. So it's like from a year where the police knew that they had to be on their best behavior <laughs> and a year where the police were not responding to as many calls. <laughs> so, ooh. And the, the numbers are still really, really bad. Um, uh, that, uh, you know, black people are more likely to experience use of force, like four times more likely than, um, than white folks in Toronto. And then they say, so he says, yeah, like real sorry, but also I want to be very clear that this is not about individual police officers actions between uh, our police officers and, uh, and the people that they're interacting with. This is about systemic racism. This is like racism that is embedded in the system. So we're not talking here about our officers who do fine work, okay? We're talking about a system. And racism is embedded in a lot of systems, many systems. <laughs> this is, you know, some of the stuff that the police chief was saying. And uh, and, you know, we're not we're not talking about our individual officers. And then so people start, you know, the journalists at the press conference start asking some questions like, OK, but OK, so you, you're collecting this use of force data. You obviously have an idea of who is doing this stuff because the, the forms apparently um, that the police officers have to uh, to fill out, they do have to put their names on it. And then, you know, the police chief says, well, no, um, you know, the province has mandated that this information is anonymized. And so we don't we don't know who's who's um, doing this stuff, but beyond that, like I said, this is about systemic racism. This isn't about individual police officers' actions. And so, along with this apology, came this really weird understanding of what systemic racism means um, that almost seemed to suggest there's nobody responsible for this thing. This is just a phenomenon that exists in the air, in the system. Um, that we're just uh, we're just pointing out, you know, we're just taking a look at, we're pointing it out here, and there's no one, nothing we can really do uh, to solve it. Now they did say that they were, you know, they they were implementing like thirty uh, sort of thirty two, I believe, reforms that included things like listening, holding town halls, consultations, and he also really relied on this language in his apology or address that he was going to, you know. Toronto Police Services was ready to listen and learn, really ready to listen and learn um, and listen to the black community and learn from the black community. And through that listening and learning, address the systemic issue that has, um, you know, nobody responsible. Well, like points to the Toronto Police for gentrifying systemic racism, I guess, <laughs> coming up with a completely <laughs> new way to define it and use it and profit from it. But isn't that so typical? Like, that's so typical of what we have right now. It's it's Justin Trudeau taking a knee and being like, I am against systemic racism. It's like, you are systemic racism. What What are you talking about? And this, like, exacerbated, oh, wow, there's nothing... Indi like individuals can't do anything. These these forces are too big, which is literally just remixing the way that we would critique them saying, yeah, you've got individual problems, but the bigger problems are systemic, right? Like it's very, very clever. I, I wonder which PR firm they paid to come up with that line of, of, uh, of argumentation or of apology, I guess. Um, but I don't know, Sandy, like, aren't you getting kind of sick of, of seeing politicians try to wash their hands like this? Oh, my God. 
I'm so over it. Like I just, there's a few things here that I think um, are being exploited. One is like the resistance to talking about race in a real way. In the last like 10 years, has that changed significantly in the mass media? Yes, we have. We are now able to say racism. (laughs) We're able to say anti-black racism, whereas like literally 10 years ago, it was like impossible to have those sorts of discussions on in, in a mass way in mass media. But people are so resistant to taking a look at something and like actually calling it racism or calling something or someone racist that we, you know, do these like fucking mental gymnastics to try to avoid pointing at someone to say, this issue is your fault. You are causing the racism. (laughs) You know what I mean? And it, I mean, for fuck's sake, like we deserve to be able to have those direct conversations so we can actually like a fucking talk about something real here. Like, no, systemic racism does not mean that there is not someone who is responsible. And it does not mean that there is no overt um, acts of racism. Because he really, he he leaned on that as well. He was like, this is not about overt racism. We're not talking about overt racism, blah, 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 blah. No, systemic racism, uh, racism that is embedded into a system certainly makes overt racism easier and facilitates overt racism. It just happens on a systemic way. It doesn't mean that it's not that overt racism doesn't exist. And it is a faulty understanding to sort of wrest these two concepts away from each other or pretend that they are not um, related to one another. But also systemic racism doesn't mean that it's just like built into the system as a, uh, you know, sort of un- traceable phenomenon when the Toronto police services decide um, from a declaration from the chief or whomever the fuck makes these sorts of decisions that they are going to police uh, Regent Park, but not police uh, the bridal path. Um, And these are two very different neighborhoods in Toronto, one in which a number of uh, one in which a lot of black people live, um, and that has a lot of public housing and one in which is like probably one of the most wealthiest, um, postal codes in the entire country. Uh, when they make the decision to police one area and to not police the other, that is a system decision. It's a system decision. That means that police officers are going to harass, interact with more people in Regent Park then they are going to interact with at the bridal path. That's a system decision that has a traceable and knowable decision maker. And that person is making a racist decision. <laughs> like that, that is how this works. It is not, um, you know, it shouldn't be easier. I mean, people who, people in journalism, people who are um, policymakers, like the idea that something is systemic racism shouldn't make it like easier to say. That's not, it's not a concept that um, absolves you of pointing the finger at someone and saying, this is the person who's responsible for this shit. Like that's kind of the point still. And I fear that people have, um, are, are so fearful of pointing the finger when it comes to racism 
because it is such a value statement, it's like you're essentially like the meaning of it in our culture is you are a bad person. And people are so resistant to saying you are a bad person um, that we've tied ourselves in knots creating this this like responsible, um, uh, free <laughs> phenomenon that uh, that just means that black people continue to uh to to be treated um with their lives being forced into interruption or uh killed by police and and same with indigenous communities and people who are poor who are living in poverty because we're fucking fearful of pointing the finger or fucking fearful of saying um this this is a this is a racist decision this is racism while you were talking, I was thinking about an interaction that I had uh, recently on Twitter with the former principal secretary to the prime minister, Gerald Butts. Now, these two are friends. They were roommates at McGill together, and they've got a long history together. Um, and he was retweeting someone that was saying something to the effect of, today it is now more normal that boys or young men are in the far right and then and they have to have a moment to make them realize that they have to leave the far right, then it would be in the opposite direction. So it's just like omnipresent. This the the far right tendencies are so um are, are so everywhere that it is more likely the case that young young men or boys are in the far right just by virtue of being online rather than actually going to seek it out. And he retweeted it saying, like, this is such a crisis. I'm really concerned. Like, you know, we need to we need to save our boys or something like this. And I just thought it was a perfect example of ex of exactly what we're talking about, actually. This idea that, like, no one can be blamed. No one has any ability to change anything in society right now. And certainly not someone with the kind of proximity that he has to the fucking prime minister. Now, he doesn't have his position anymore because folks might remember that he got axed uh, over the, the, the crisis with uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould. But... Like, this is a guy who had the ear, the, the, a very close ear to the prime minister for many, many years and is like, has the gall to tweet like, oh, if only someone could do something about this. And it's like your project, the liberal project that you had a direct hand in delivering to us. And then, of course, indirect hand. And then, of course, some of the stuff predates you, but you, you still carry it on your shoulders. You Every single liberal in this fucking country carries the Chrétien Martin budget of, of, of 1995 that is just underfunded so many of our social services. They all wear that, whether or not they were even fucking alive in 1995. I don't want to think of how long ago that was and if it's possible that anyone was elected who was born after that. Anyway, um, and so I, I responded to him being like, oh, sorry, but fuck off, actually. Like, you of all people cannot be all like, oh, I just don't know what to do. Like, you had a direct hand into creating the social conditions that lead to this. And there are people that didn't like what I was saying. They thought that I was being unfair, that how can we blame an individual for this massive problem? And it's exactly that. It's like we have social forces that are grinding people into the ground, whether that is airport workers or healthcare workers or teachers or shipping logistics workers, like whatever, whether that is people who are being forced to repay their CERB, even though they absolutely should not have been forced to repay their CERB, whether that is absolute ridiculousness, whether that is people who work for corporations that had massive handouts from the federal government that are now getting literally fuck all and fucked over by their employers. Like all of this is thanks to liberal policy. 
All of this is thanks to the fucking Liberal Party of Canada and the federal government and Justin Trudeau. And his best friend is going to be up there on Twitter saying, oh, if only there was something we can do. There are so many things that we can do. The problem is that there is uh, a sphincter between us and the House of Commons and every person in the House of Commons, like including the opposition parties. And that sphincter is stopping like the will of what people actually want and need and, tr- and to be translated into something that makes sense in the House of Commons. And so rather than us being able to point to exactly what needs to happen, it's like, oh, we don't know. Oh, yeah, we're totally against systemic racism as well. Oh, isn't it so bad? Oh, another fucking hate crime. A woman is set on fire in, de- in in Toronto on a random hate crime attack. Oh, we just, it's just so bad. Oh, things just seem to be going so bad. We just don't know what to do. It's like, if you fuckers don't know what the fuck to do, then, 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 uh, then go start working at the airport because they need some fucking help. <laughs> and there's a lot of folks at the airport that know exactly what we need to fucking do in this country. And you're taking up precious spot from them. Oh my God. Uh, I'm going to get a little bit meta with this blame game thing now. So like, Okay. Yeah. Uh, Here's another systemic racism problem, Nora, is how we place blame and who we are willing to place blame on. That is a systemic racism problem (laughs) that that has people that we can hold accountable to. So this whole resistance to blaming the government, blaming the Liberal Party, blaming the police – like, it's just like, oh, this is a systemic racism problem that we don't know how to do anything about. And so we can't hold them accountable. We can't do anything to them. We certainly have no problem blaming black people, indigenous people, people who are poor, people who are houseless for their particular, for the problems that they are experiencing in their communities that are caused by these people who were refusing to point the finger at. So... Um, you know, one of the, the kind of ridiculous responses that I saw to the, the police, um, uh, this release of police data that was like in the sun uh, was that like, uh, come on, police, obviously. And a lot of people, um, detractors uh, who, are, you know, are police apologists were responding in this same way online. It was like, come on, police. Like, you're saying there's a, there's a racism problem, but take a look at the most wanted people uh, in, ter- in, in Toronto, in the Toronto Police Services. Like, take a look at their mugshots. They're majority black. Like, take a look at the crime statistics. Where is crime happening? In majority black communities, in communities where there are high um, population of black people. As such, this is a problem that black people have caused themselves. This, that is, that, we have no problem pointing that finger, right? Like, black people are out to blame for their own problem. Like, that's what it is. It's the same sort of shit that we, when, if we're going to expand that to other social issues, like, women, why don't they leave? Why don't they leave difficult situations? Uh, People who are houseless, get a job. Why don't they just get a job? Like there's all of these ways that we are just very, very comfortable blaming people um, who are experiencing the the worst and the most urgent um, consequences of the failures of of policymakers and people in power um, to and and us quite frankly uh, people you know in the media and us to point the finger squarely in the right direction and it's like 
<laughs> especially for, you know, this policing issue. It's like, man, the problem is the police. Like we are talking about being over-policed and still um, people are like, well, if I look at these police statistics that come from the issue of being over-policed, it says that police are policing black people, which means that black people are the ones causing the crimes. But my God, the whole point is that black people are over-policed. You cannot use those statistics. That is what the data is telling us, is that you can't use those statistics. Those mugshots are as a result of black people being over-policed. Those crime statistics are as a result of black people being over-policed. So they don't mean anything. They don't tell you anything about, um, you know, a propensity towards crime, which is what people are suggesting, which is racist. But for some reason, that gets past an editor? How? <laughs> How? How? It's literally what the data is telling you. And it somehow gets past an editor. But it takes years and years of pushing and prodding to get people to even consider that we should collect this data or to get people to even consider that the solution is in defunding and abolishing the police. It's ludicrous the way that um, our society is so resistant to like... Um, you know, a, a, a logic <laughs> that makes sense for this shit. And it, you know, I just, I mean, fuck for, for journalists who are listening, I just, I really think that there needs to be a way, uh, that there is a reckoning on this sort of stuff where we can take a look and actually discuss the people who are responsible for the way that social forces are impacting those who are the most vulnerable in our society. Because, my God, the consequences are far too... <sighs> they're far too dire for so many people. Uh, in our society. And it just like, it doesn't make sense that the reason why we can't address those things is because, you know, we're fucking afraid to call someone racist. That's like a hilarious problem. Mm -hmm. Like, what are you talking about? That's not a real problem. No, it's it's just a way to spin everything around. It's just a way to spin uh, to spin our heads around and confuse us and distract us and make us focus on other things. I mean, it was completely ridiculous to me that the same day, I think, that this report came out in Toronto, Pride Toronto announced that they would be having even more security talking about increased threats to LGBTQ people. And it's like... <laughs> <laughs> oh my god like like no one's no one's learning anything because people in power are in power because they're shitty i mean that's kind of like one of the sad realities of the way our society is structured is that you know shit floats to the top and that is absolutely true in canada and you know every single time that there's an announcement that doesn't seem directly connected to these things this is where we need to be very clear that they are and so sandy while we've been recording this um, an announcement's been made. I won't say which, by, which by which minister, because you will know then what the announcement's for. But the federal government is going to be giving four point nine billion dollars to something new that was not in the in the two thousand twenty two budget. Can you guess where that money might be going to? Oh my god! What <laughs> something new? They sorry, like 
Yeah. They like just they got uh, found they just found randomly four point nine billion dollars to spend. Four point nine billion. Um K <laughs> this year. Uh don't tell me that it's going to public safety. Um it's going to a kind of public safety. I mean in the most like not at all related to public safety kind of way, but well, I'm going to say what I hope it's going to. Climate crisis. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nope. No, 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 no. No, it's going to uh, NORAD. It's going to the North American no. uh, defense <laughs> fucking Santa tracker. Yeah, yeah. You're kidding. And that's part of a $40 billion <laughs> pledge that they're giving to NORAD over the next 20 years. So... To all those folks who are like, oh, my God, we, what are we doing? Our boys are falling to the far right. Or, oh, my God, what are we going to do? The police are just so racist. We just don't know what to do. Well, when you spend $4.9 billion fucking dollars on NORAD, there's a direct connection. <laughs> there's a direct connection between that and between the fact that people are not paid enough to do the work that we need them to do to keep society from fucking operating. And so while everyone is traumatized and in, in, in shock from the last two and a half years and still trying to navigate that trauma, forces are, are mobilizing capital towards places that will make things fucking worse. And if, if, you're, if you're not paying attention, it can become very easy to miss this stuff and to be very confused to be like, oh, man, if only we had money to make tuition fees free. Oh, oh, there, there's the money. <laughs> no, it's, it's going to be going towards um, fucking saber rattling with Russia. Yeah. So every time you hear someone say, you know, like, I think we should know this very clearly from 2020. But every time you hear someone say, who's going to pay for that? There's no money for that. We should all know that that's bullshit. Like, the, it, you know, their money exists when they need money to exist to save corporations, to make sure society exists exactly the way that it exists, even when, you know, um, a crises keep showing us that we cannot sustain this model of um of societal organization, it will collapse. It will fail. Um, you know, money is found to make it make it just keep trucking a little bit longer. This four point nine billion that wasn't allocated in the budget just found. That's a stunning expenditure of money that could do a whole lot to fix education, to fix housing, to fix. Um, issues with, you know, to, to make pharmacare happen, that promise that, you know, there's been no movement on um, to, to, to fix uh, issues that would actually make our society safer and more secure, <sighs> to make tuition free, all of these sorts of things. It's just, uh, you know, that there's, <laughs> there's a way that our governments treat us as though we can't parse through these issues. And um, in part, the responsibility to show them that, yes, we can, and that we, um, you know, will respond to that is is on the shoulders of the media. And, uh, you know, I, there just really needs to be a different approach to the way that we discuss these things. As I was doing a lot of um, media on the day that this, this was announced, um, I was frustratingly asked a couple of times, well, what does defund the police even mean? And I, you know, I thought we were past this, like, and it's like, if you're going to write, if you're going to write a story, um, as a journalist 
um, and sort of prepare, uh, you know, produce a segment. Like, please, please just focus on stuff that would try to push the conversation forward a little bit that gets to the heart of the issues. Let's not do this sort of weird waffling shit that we see um, really uh, in like an intensified way south of the border. We can do things differently. We don't have to copy what's happening in the United States and we can have real conversations about shit. We don't have to pretend that we don't know what the word defund means. We know what the word defund means. We've been through this like two years ago. We can move forward on something that makes more sense and is going to have uh, more of an impact on how people understand and analyze uh, one of the most urgent forms of anti-Blackness, of the way that anti-Blackness occurs in our society. And before we end, I do want to just say uh, congratulations to the people of Colombia for their elections. A, a ray of hope in an otherwise dreary sad, depressing world. 